Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication which brings us to today in which I review episode 6 of Hulu's Castle Rock. Guys, if you're not watching Castle Rock then you are denying yourself uh, a great deal of pleasure um, because these are 42 minutes of just really good television and um, this has been a fantastic show to watch this summer um, so I'm excited to have been chronicling uh, Castle Rock so far and I'm excited to talk about episode six we are nearing the conclusion after this um, we only have seven eight and nine after this and for I'll talk about this in a little bit but the the buzz online about episode seven I'm getting really really excited um, and I think that episode six just teed up my interest even more. So before I get into any more thoughts about um, episode six, I want to read some listener emails, which you too can do if you want to write into um, you know me and, and share any of your thoughts on Castle Rock, on it, on whatever, anything related to Stephen King, please write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So up first, we have BLKSTG, the editor of Constant Readers, which you can check out at constantreaders.org. And BLKSTG writes, just caught your latest podcast about Castle Rock uh, episode five, and you definitely have a new fan. As has been said before, it's awesome to find a King reviewer interested in critical analysis and discussion. Very refreshing. I am also resonated with one of the emailers that you read. As is common with King fans, I really learned my love of reading and writing from Uncle Steve, and the book that got me into his work was, of course, It. But as I've gotten older, I'd sort of fallen out with him as I got busy and read more political and nonfiction work. Then I visited Bangor, and I realized how much of dairy was lifted whole cloth. And now I've embarked on a similar mission to yours, to consume every bit of King Alia and review it critically on my blog, which again, you can uh, check out at constantreaders.org. As I wandered around Bangor, I remembered how important Stephen King was to my own development as a writer and a reader, and hell is a human too. And I realized that there was something special about his work and that it would be a ton of fun to try and unpack what exactly that something is. Thanks for all of your hard work. You have a new fan for sure. Well, thank you, BLKSTG, editor of Constant Readers, which you can go check out at constantreaders.org. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting now that we have, as I, I think that a, a generation of us who grew up on Stephen King, as we are getting older and, and, and we are aging, um, into a, a point where his his catalog, you know, as I've discussed on the show, it has different cycles, it has different phases, it reveals a lot about uh, humanity um, from both the historical context at this point, it really reveals a, a glimpse into the past, um, you know, and, and, and I was thinking today about uh, Hearts in Atlantis, I was reading um, some nonfiction work detailing the the rise of the baby boomers and the the negative impact that the baby boomers had on uh on on society and the future and i couldn't help but think about the the um the failings of that generation as chronicled by stephen king in hearts in atlantis and um I, it just got me thinking and, and this 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 email you know definitely reinforces it that there's so much to be able to unpack from him, um, you know, and 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 trying to find that what that that special thing is. It definitely has been a joy in in my podcast. So I, I'd strongly encourage anyone to just if you haven't check check out Stephen King, <laughs> which is a stupid thing to say in the Stephen King cast, but go back, like go back and and read and and try and find what that that through line is and what makes him special. There's been a lot of imitators out there, but uh, there's only one true king, right? Then we have Andy who writes, Hello, constant reader. I just started listening to the King cast a few weeks back and I am hooked. I'm currently on the Dead Zone movie and I am excited to move on to Dark Tower and beyond. I wanted to share my story on how I became a lifelong fan myself. I was uh, for a long time a uh, never a strong reader and I did very poorly in all English classes up until maybe sophomore year in high school. I was big into movies and became fascinated by The Shining. I ended up starting to watch all Stephen King's movies as I could get my hands on at Blockbuster Video. Pour one out. There's only one left. And if anyone lives near that Blockbuster Video, you better keep it live. I don't want Blockbuster to die entirely. As I mentioned, I was still not much of a reader. And in middle school, I picked up a copy of uh, The Shining. Reading it was still quite a struggle and it sat on my bookshelf for years. Fast forward to the fateful summer of the Green Mile serial publications in 1996. 
My mother and I were at the grocery store on our way to a large cookout that would be filled with manly, many adults, or manly adult. I saw the Green Mile book and its size was just right uh, to maybe so I could get into it. I asked my mom if I could get the book to pass the time at the cookout. My mom jumped at anything to get to read, so I got parts one and two, and I was hooked. Before I knew I was buying the rest of the Green Mile books, it wasn't long before I moved my way onto Christine, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, It, The Stand, The Tommyknockers, and all three Dark Tower books to that point, and yes, The Shinning. As a result, I wrote a paper in uh, my junior year of English on Stephen King, which I think ended up being a turning point in many ways to help me become more of a confident and constant reader slash student. These days, I'm married with a small child. I still find the time to read the newer works as they come out, but still have quite a few over the past few years that I'll get to soon enough. Thanks again, and keep the good work. Andy, Andy, thank you for, for writing in. I think that that's interesting that we all have different ways of getting into King, and, and to know that his experiment to challenge himself with the Green Mile led to someone being able to that, that, unlocking that, that love of, of reading. Um, you know, it's just yet another reason why that experiment was a worthwhile one. It definitely helped him keep his creative blade uh, sharp, but it also opened the doorway uh, for you. So that's awesome. Mark writes, Dear Constant Reader, I've been listening to the Stephen King cast since 2016, and it's the first time I have felt compelled to write in. Your interview last week with Dustin Thomason was outstanding. Although Stephen King cast is one of those rare one-man podcasts that I enjoy listening to, it was great to hear you bounce your thoughts off of one of Castle Rock's showrunners. I am writing to share in my thoughts about Castle Rock and the overall Stephen King universe. While the show is obviously aimed at a wide streaming audience, it's the Easter eggs for us Stephen King fans that make it truly special. I'm glad your interview with Thomason focused on the decisions to alter the canon of an iconic Stephen King character like Sheriff Pangborn because it's one of the few things about the show that's bugged me so far. First off, a little background. I became a Stephen King fan about the age of 18. In the summer of 92, I read It as school, as soon as school left out. By the time I got to the last few hundred pages of the book, I saw a paperback copy of Needful Things in the number one bestseller spot in my local grocery store. I had already read Cujo a few months before, so the last Castle Rock story subtitle got my attention. I scraped my allowance together and bought my first King novel. My initial thoughts were mixed. After following the loser's life and death struggles with Pennywise the previous six weeks, the comparatively slow-moving Needful Things was a little disappointing. As a young reader, I didn't clue into the more satirical aspects of the book and found the repeated trope of townspeople being enchanted by their needful thing, playing a prank on one of their neighbors and having said prank backfire kind of tedious after a while. There was one exception, though. I rooted like crazy for Alan Pangborn and Polly Chalmers from the moment they appeared on the page. I raced, through, I raced through the various sections about Elvis Presley, Sandy Koufax, and magic horse racing games to see what would happen next to these two characters. You wouldn't think a romance between two 40-something adults would resonate with an adolescent, but somehow it did. The flashbacks seen in Alan's kitchen where Polly walks him through all the reasons he wasn't at fault in his wife and son's death was so well done, I'm convinced it could be used as a textbook for grief counseling. I also love the little things about the characters, Alan's shadow puppets, Polly's struggles with arthritis, Polly worrying about what Alan would think about her own son's death when Alan was ready to wait patiently to hear the real story, etc. When Gaunt momentarily tricked Polly with the letter from the San Francisco Welfare Office, I was genuinely invested in the outcome of their relationship. So I slogged through the book and was happy that, spoiler alert, Alan and Polly rode off into the sunset despite some of the more hackneyed aspects of the final chapters. Later that summer, I checked out the Needful Things audiobook from the library for the long car ride on a family vacation. Read by King himself, I got caught up once more in the understated chemistry on Alan and Polly's relationship. King's narration of the scene in Alan's kitchen was especially poignant, I thought. Ever since then, I've reread Needful Things several times and come to appreciate the rest of the book. It's certainly one of King's most underrated efforts, and Alan and Polly remain by far my favorite King characters, and that's coming from someone who loves Stu Redman, Roland Deschain, Richie Tozier, and so many others. I've listened to almost all of your podcasts and realize you probably share a lot of my thoughts. The idea of Alan Pangborn as a reoccurring character in a series of adventures would have been great. When I heard that Alan would be the only classic King character to star in the first season of Castle Rock, I was incredibly excited. Nothing against Ed Harris, but nothing in the Needful Things movie seemed to capture the literary essence of Pangborn's character. 
Six episodes into the first season, I love the show, but remain a little disappointed in the choices they made with Alan. The idea of moving his character 27 years into the future is an inspired one, but I think they're still missing a lot of what made him jump off the page in Needful Things. And while I realize that Castle Rock is its own show and not an adaptation of Needful Things, Pangborn, Pangborn doesn't, j just doesn't feel like Pangborn. Like Harris in Needful Things, Scott Glenn is being asked to play a non-nonsense law enforcement character from Central Casting rather than the small town sheriff who performed magic tricks for kids and wasn't afraid to confront the more vulnerable aspects of his grief after his wife and son's accident. And when they wrote Polly out of the show entirely, boo, hiss, just kidding. Ruth Deaver um, is a nice consolation prize, I guess, but Polly in my humble opinion, was the first great female character of King's career. I don't think it's an accident that King wrote almost exclusively about women so shortly after the publication of Needful Things. Jesse Burlingame, Dolores Claiborne, and Rose Daniels owe a lot to Polly. Maybe someday we'll get a proper, proper adaptation of her story. Hopefully, her time with Alan is covered as well. Anyway, nitpicks aside, I'm enjoying Castle Rock. The standalone story has my attention and the cast is unbelievably strong. I hadn't heard of Andre Holland before he was cast in this show and I'm already one of his biggest fans. Hot take, in 10 or 15 years, Holland might be regarded as the Tom Hanks of his generation. He just has that quiet sincerity about him in everything that he does. Scott Glenn, Sissy Spacek, Melanie Linsky, and Terry O'Quinn are so good that you wish that they had their own shows. And most of all, I think that the show has captured the small town spirit of King's works that so many adaptations have either bungled or ignored. Looking forward to the second season and hopefully many more. Mark, that's a very um, well thought out, well reasoned um, you know, email covering a lot of aspects of, of Castle Rock. So guys, if you have any thoughts on Castle Rock or anything regarding Stephen King, please write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, guys, what I'm going to do now before I get into my thoughts on episode six, I'm going to read from Decider.com, Zach Dion's um, recap of episode six, Filter. And Zach begins, what an episode. But before we let Henry's series shifting 12 minutes in the woods swallow us up over again, let's hit the only slightly less important stuff from Castle Rock episode six, Filter. After his first night in the storage room above the Deaver garage, the kid tells Pangborn he needs something from Syracuse in order to help Ruth, but can't explain in words that you'd understand. To be determined whether he actually just wants Alan out of his way, is he enacting a layered plan or improvising? Either way, he finds a new way to be silently unsettling, wearing one of Father Deaver's boxy, askew suits and letting himself into the house where Ruth's at the brain doctor he just visited. He puts on an old record about the emptiness of living without love. In isolation, he, a kidnappee, and Henry, a pariah, have both known for 27 years. Henry's one blood tie in the world will barely meet his eye getting off the bus from Boston, tending closely to a game on his phone. The kid regards his reflection in Ruth's mirror a little too long before lying on her bed in bare feet, convincing plenty of viewers he's truly Satan for just that. Is he trying to customize his toxic touch into something more John Coffee-esque for her? Why does it feel so subtly terrifying then? Shortly after, Ruth freezes seeing the kid for the first time, a demonic wax figure outside her kitchen window, and she's certain they buried her husband in that suit. At that morning's re-entering, Reverend, Kev, Kev Cos, Reverend Ken Cosgrove continues the Corinthians verse begun in Molly's nightmare for this perishable body must put out on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Wendell offers a simple woe and having Skarsgård and his losers club foe chosen Jacobs encounter each other literally three minutes after Wendell's introduction is a spectacular flex. Henry can't even finish his sentence explaining who the creep is before he's on the phone with Juniper Hill, abandoning the savior story out of concern for his family. The deal's sealed when he finds that the kid has been trawling through the Reverend's sermon cassettes and watching old tapes of Henry and his dad's mystery hikes. Last week, it wasn't clear if the kid caused a family to erupt in violence or just sensed impending tragedy. Getting dumped at the psychiatric hospital, he definitely makes a bird torpedo itself into the ground. When he engineers a fire that kills 14 and allows four patients to escape. The way he turns back up at Ruth's, 
taking off his coat and shoes without a word, is only outdone in ominousness by the blood dripping down his hand at the end. Ruth's conversation with her grandson makes it hard to believe she's a goner yet, if only because she's got more to reveal. If I tell you something, can you keep your mouth shut? She asks Wendell, dead serious, after returning from a reverie. We've been here before, this conversation. We'll be here again. Life used to go in one direction, forward, like one of those people movers at the airport. I like how she calls them people movers. But somehow I got off it. It's like I just brought your father home from foster care. He was half your size. Now here you are. For all I know, my father's outside taking care of his roses, younger than me. And I'll never know when I'm going next. Which brings us to the chess pieces. When Ruth gets lost in the past, they're her breadcrumbs. She finds one around the house, as Henry did in the fridge. Well, I know it's now, not then, that I can find my way out of the woods. And what then was she in when Wendell first greeted her, standing behind her bedroom door with a blank look, eerily evoking Piper Laurie at the end of Carrie? Does she know that an intruder had just been there? Failing again to get any info from his mom, Henry tries Molly, still being haunted by the Reverend's gauzy ghost. Did she ever sense what they were doing out among the trees, why his dad sounded like he was losing his mind? He falters asking the heavier question. Why would he have tried shoving, shoving to his death the virtuous man who gave him a home? You hated him, Henry, Molly answers. Henry never said so, but he never had to. You were in the woods, and I was a part of you, and you were part of me. We were the same, she says, adding she felt his fear, then his relief. Why, because I thought he was gone, Henry asks, indign indignantly trying to force a love that wasn't there. Child Henry, he's not my real dad. Adult Henry, to his son's curiosity about his biological parents, grandma and grandpa are my only real parents. End of discussion. You wanted him dead, Molly says, finally sharing her burden of 27 years. That's why I went to your parents' room. She didn't know how she got there, and for some time convinced herself it hadn't been real. Hearing exactly how she did it, learning his dad didn't die of the injuries he, got himself, he himself got blamed for, Henry is appalled. Molly, he died because of me, because it was what you wanted. We did it together. When I looked down at my hand, it was like it was your hand. You did it through me. Henry leaves with a brutal, you are fucking crazy. Shout out to Molly for once again keeping it together despite a nearly debilitating power and the weight of the town's past and future on her shoulders. Henry continues, leaving his son to fend for himself and takes to the woods. Brilliantly, and to rad cinematic effect, using the old camcorder's display to retrace a decades-old walk with his dad. When the batteries die along with the sun, he stumbles upon the Game Changers Odin Branch and Willie. The men were watching Henry at Pangborn's event and Father Deaver's zero other attendees' funeral, leaving in, leaving in an RV calling to mind the vampiric True Knot in the Shining sequel, Doctor Sleep. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. Across a campfire, Willie interprets Branch's sign language with a few contributions of his own. Honestly, I was surprised he didn't hold your father's surface out here, Branch signs, adding almost exactly what we have heard about the woodsy Warden Lacey. This place was his church. Branch and Reverend Deaver, stunningly, knew each other well, sharing certain interests, spirituality, philosophy, physics. The men are in the forest, to listen, of course, just like you. To what Deaver, once again like Lacey, called the voice of God. The ancients called it the music of the spheres, branch signs. Of course, I have a more scientific view of the nature of the schisma. That's the preferred nomenclature now. So, not God's voice? Henry, I have advanced degrees in bio and psychoacoustics. Awesome thing to say. Best I can tell, schisma is actually nanoscale turbulences caused by cochlear quantum totalities abrading in parallel. Other here's, other nows, all possible pasts, all possible presents. Schisma is the sound of the universe trying to reconcile them. King concepts like thinnies, todash chimes, and the levels of the dark tower are springing to mind. For some, it presents as ringing in the ears. You ever had that, Henry? Branch signs with a knowing look. His tinnitus, linked in some schools of thought to things like divine messages, prophecies, and psychic hearing, has been a constant since Zaleski's mass shooting. Incredible sound design across the board, and we're starting to see why. See, the sound may come and go, he signs, but the schisma, it's eternal. It's eternal and everywhere, underlying all space-time. 
but it's been getting louder again, Henry. It hasn't risen to these levels in decades. There are geographic variations to the volume, again singling out Castle Rock as an unholy place rather than just a destination for monsters. But even when it's loud, the schisma completes, competes with the words un, world's unceasing noise. So even the lucky ones who hear it have to clarify, amplify branch signs. And of course, the most committed of us do more. He goes on with Holland hitting a new level with these quiet reactions he's always been tasked with. During the last amplitude crest, your father con conceived a device. He compared it to God's instructions for Noah, exactly the type of arc talky Lacey was spewing last week. He called it the filter branch signs. We've plunged into a new level of awesomeness. The filter is housed in the RV, a pretty ordinary looking soundproof chamber with certain modifications. What's the point of it if Henry already hears the schisma? What you hear now is just a rumor, Branch signs. What you'll hear in the filter is truth. Henry's not into it, and Odin understands. He sees suffering, searching. And how can Henry's son know him if he doesn't know himself? Schisma's all I hear now, Branch signs. It's why I corrected myself. And after tonight, young Willie will be corrected too. Like, made deaf? Not deaf, Branch says aloud. Perfect. Henry gets shoved and locked in launching through dazzling, spastic mental wormholes that will hopefully be interpreted clearly for us soon. Because even after all of this, the only new thing that we can really catch is an instant of Henry wearing sunglasses inside, possibly right after his rescue. The dessert to that wild feast is Pangborn's return to Castle Rock. Mission accomplished, he tells the kid. Lacey's suicide mobile will be delivered in the morning. What do we do then? There will be a monument, the kid rasps confounding Alan again, to Warden Lacey, to everyone who helped put me in that cage. You said you'd help her, Pangborn seethes. Why would you say that? The kid's answer comes with a scary new vulnerability as Alan spots his bloody, quivering hand. Why would you leave me in that trunk, Sheriff? In the house a record skipping, there's been a struggle, the pan smoking on the stove, as Henry found it earlier because time is clearly a flat circle, and bloody handprints streak the, well, streak the wall. Um... Okay, guys, now to um, my thoughts on this episode. So, to begin, um, what we get is we get the establishing shot of the Castle Rock Woods. It's a beautiful shot, by the way. Um, you know, it has that perfect, quaint foliage that New England's famous for, that golden, orange, crisp sunset color. A piece of the woods segues to the burial of Henry's father, an apt transition from what we'll later learn from Odin, that the pastor's church had been the woods. As his father is put into the ground, Henry's hearing problem starts humming again. And knowing where this is going, at least by the end of this episode, I'm far more intrigued about the ringing in his ear than I previously was last week. At the gravesite, Henry is distracted by the reappearance of the two men who had been standing in the bushes during Alan's bridge ceremony in the previous episode. They're spotted out, they're spotted and then head off into their Winnebago. Shades of the true knot for the Dr. Sleep stands out there. Now, guys, seriously, Dr. Sleep gets a bad rap, and I will state this anytime I have the opportunity. And there's going to be more talk about Dr. Sleep in the next year um, as we head closer into uh, production. Um, it's currently being casted. Um, uh, we have Ewan McGregor playing an adult Danny. We have Rebecca Ferguson playing uh, Rose the Hat. Um, and Mike Flanagan, who had directed uh, Gerald's Game, is going to be directing this movie. So a lot of people don't like Dr. Sleep. Um, I wasn't a huge fan when I first read it. Um, but the purposes of the reread for this podcast, I really came around on Dr. Sleep. So if you have not read it simply because you might have heard bad things, you're doing yourself a disservice. Um, if you did read it and didn't like it because it wasn't the thing that you wanted it to be or the thing that you thought that it would be or you didn't like it because it wasn't The Shining, um, listen to my review. And, and see if I'm able to change your mind because I think that the strength of Dr. Sleep is that it purposefully did not give you the thing that you thought that it would be. 
Um, as I've often said, it zigs where the shining zags. Um, and, you know, as I've said before, the shining is a, is a claustrophobic, isolated story about a, a family being preyed upon by uh, um, alien, I mean, I, and I mean that in the, in the sense of unrelatable, unempathetic, unsympathetic supernatural creatures, whereas in Dr. Sleep, by contrast, we have a story that takes place not within the isolation of one particular location, but across the entire United States of America. And it's not one family that is being haunted or preyed upon. It's really the creation of a new family fighting back against creatures that aren't um, unsympathetic and alien in that regard. I mean, to some extent, they are sympathetic. They are pitiful. They are understandable. They are in their own way um, not human. They are human, but uh, he, he, he does create a, a sympathy for them, uh, whereas the ghosts were just devils, really. Uh, so it, it is the, the, the inverse of Shining, and it's purposeful, and therefore I believe that it is a full realization of what the author had intended, and it is done well. Um, so I strongly recommend that you uh, give it a shot. Okay, so back at the Deaver homestead, the kid is making himself comfortable putting on the pastor's old clothes and watching old VHS tapes of young Henry walking through woods. Alan disrupts him to let him know that the warden's car has been tracked down to a junkyard in Syracuse. He's trying to get the information from the kid on how the mysterious prisoner is going to help Ruth, as promised in the previous episode. Time is her enemy, Sheriff, he says, which is true. But I wonder how many levels this line reading works upon. With what Ruth will later say about slipping in and out of the present and the past, time, as an age, isn't just her enemy. I honestly think that something is going to happen next week with bonkers time travelers, something along that sort. So a return to this line will have more pronounced effect upon the show. That's just my guess. The kid puts on the sun ain't gonna shine anymore and checks himself out in the mirror. And if you look creepy before, he gives himself a real hold my beer moment. The simple decision to dress him in ill-fitting clothes provides a wonderful, unsettling quality to his image with his wide David Byrne shoulders and his forearms thrusting through his sleeves, shades of Boris Karloff. I know that Bill Skarsgård's appeared in other things, Hemlock Grove, uh, recently Deadpool 2, but arguably this and it are his two biggest, most spotlit roles, and he has, in these two roles at least, uh, demonstrated an unbelievable talent at using his body for maximum effect but he's doing it so differently within each of these two performances. Pennywise was manic, twitchy, slobbering, and spider-like. Here, he's lumbering yet graceful, hesitant yet powerful, curious yet confident. And all this is embodied in the way he moves, the way he walks, the way he uses his eyes, his chronic lack of emotion on his face. It's a fantastic performance that continues to draw the viewer in. You just want to know more. At the hospital, Ruth and Alan are sitting in a doctor's office adorned with very strange-looking art, which could be images of the brain's neurons, but looks more like deep space photos. I'm sure this is intentional and are meant to invoke the cosmic story that's been stalking this show from the shadows. Henry then waits for the bus to arrive, and much like he had done a few episodes ago, a stranger steps off onto the street of Castle Rock, a stranger pretty familiar to us and one who is familiar for sure, to Bill Skarsgård, the actor chosen Jacobs, who's playing Henry's son, Wendell. For those in the know, this actor also played Mike Hanlon in the 2017 It, which also starred, as everybody knows, Bill Skarsgård. So this is a nice little reunion. It also plays upon the doubling and cycling that It is so well known for and what we're seeing here in this show. So it, Wendell, it's, it's hard not to, to see Wendell and compare him to a young Henry. So having this character come to town when Henry, the, you know, a little bit younger, but let's just say around the same age that, that Wendell is now, 
because Henry at that age had been in danger. This is really signaling that something dangerous is going to happen around Wendell. This is not a good thing for him to come to town. Like I said, it's also reinforcing this... Well, I'll get to this in a little bit, but the, the, the doubling going on with Henry, um, that there are certain repetitions that are occurring, that him coming, that Wendell coming here is a repetition of Henry himself coming back, um, which of itself is another repetition of Henry being, of coming back after being disappeared for, um, for some days back in, in 91. But also, it, it really helps reinforce that, that, that quality that it had of the relationship between the child and the adult. So, um, of course, one story plays out as children, one story plays out uh, as adults, and here we have an actor who was in an adaptation um, playing the child is meeting um, the adult version who had suffered childhood trauma in the past in this town. So all of these decisions are very, very complimentary, and I, I, after having talked to Dusty Thomason, I... Much like like when when Bill Skarsgård was cast, they didn't know that he was going to blow up um, in uh, due to his popularity in the performance of it. Similarly, like I don't know if if Chosen Jacobs was was cast because of his his casting in it, or if it was just uh, serendipity. Um, but it for whatever reason, it's working out wonders. Henry then gets a very 2018 greeting when Wendell doesn't even look up from his phone to greet his dad. Back at the house, Wendell reunites with his grandmother. As they discuss Wendell's current interests, Carrie White looks out of her window to discover Pennywise, a dancing clown, standing there. Now, of course, I'm being silly about it, but how cool is it to know that, yes, Carrie is facing off against Pennywise? As I've mentioned before in this show, and even touched upon by uh, Dusty Thomason in my interview, we, we have the Alpha and the Omega of the Stephen King adaptations, both in the same series, and here, they are finally face-to-face. And how creepy is Skarsgård here? Now, here's the question. Not only are we no doubt going to get some crazy time travel shenanigans next week, but do we have resurrections and reincarnations as well? Keep in mind that the kid is wearing the suit that Ruth believes her husband had been married in. What if the kid, all this time, is the formerly deceased pastor either plucked from another reality, a different timeline, or simply reborn again? It would fit with the strange looping of this show, of the double burying of the father to Wendell getting off the bus a la Shades of his father, of another warden of Shawshank killing himself. Twinning has always played a part of the King universe, whether it be the literal twinners of the Talisman or thematic twinners, but it'd be crazy if the kid was his own twinner. And to double down on this, Henry catches him watching old videos of Henry's father taking his son into the woods. Now, what if this isn't a client and attorney watching the videos together, but a father and son watching videos of an earlier time in their lives? Henry then takes the kid to a famous Stephen King location, Juniper Hill, which fans of It will remember was where Henry Bowers had stayed. To set the mood, crows are circling around the building, and even one commits suicide as soon as the kid arrives. Another father and son have had some time together, and Wendell... As Wendell and Henry briefly talk about the, uh, Henry's origins, we learn that he was adopted at six and that Ruth and the pastor had possibly lost a child. Entering, interestingly, Henry ducks the question of his real parents, which is only going to fuel the fire that his parents are well-known, established Stephen King characters. I still don't think that that's the case, but I'd be curious to find out. As Henry stares off into the woods to try and determine what his father had been up to all those years ago, he decides to call upon Molly, who drops the bombshell that she had killed his father. Unsurprisingly, this doesn't go over well, and I'm not sure how I feel about this whole plotline. I don't know if it feels fully integrated into either the rest of the story or the characters. I don't really have much to say on it. At the junkyard, Alan searches for Lacey's car while Henry leaves Wendell and Ruth alone to find answers in the woods. Ruth fills her grandson in and us of what the system of the chess pieces mean. Then she starts to drop bombs about time, which signifies something greater than just the perception of time, but time itself. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop my thoughts here and, and project a little bit, do a little bit of time traveling right now. Um... <sighs> All of the hints 
I'm saying hints, and I'm not saying this with any, with any uh, conclusion. I don't have screeners. I'm watching this in real time along with um, everyone out there. Um, you know, but there have been screeners, and critics have been able to screen this show for the first seven or eight episodes. I'm not quite sure. Um, but what has hit Twitter, even though people, critics, can't review it for the public yet, they... Critics have sort of teased what next week is going to bring. And you know what I've seen a lot on my Twitter feed? Uh, Desmond Hume, pictures of Desmond Hume holding a phone to his ear. Now, for those of you who are in the know with what that means, um, that is a, 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 a picture from the show Lost, specifically from... Uh, an episode of the show that recently on The Ringer was just voted the number one greatest single, the uh, single greatest episode, uh, television episode of the century called The Constant. Um, and The Constant is an incredible piece of sci-fi rooted with um, an incredible emotional anchor. Um, it, it really is a, a beautiful um, hour of television. That uh, that is 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 very mind melting. Um, the time travel in that episode and just the time travel on Lost is 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 really really well done. Spoiler alert: There's time travel on Lost. Um, but with what we are seeing about. Uh, well, we're not seeing it, but it, it's it's being hinted at heavily, especially with what Ruth is talking about here with the, you know, talks about time and Henry's own missing time. And um, time is definitely going to play a factor. And I think that based on uh, early whisperings and rumors and just buzz, next week's episode uh, is going to be... Um, crazy. That's that's what the speculation is. I'm very, very excited. Meanwhile, in the woods, Henry is following his 11-year-old self's footsteps by following the path through the viewfinder of the old camcorder. It's a really, I mean, major credit here. I don't know whose idea this was. I don't know if it was Mark Bernardin, one of the, the two um, co-writers of this episode, or uh, Vinnie Wellhelm. Uh, the the other uh, writer of this episode, uh, I'm not sure, but it, uh, it it's something that I've never seen before, and I got to give credit to to wherever that credit is due. That it it really was very inventive. I, I was very happy to see something that was just visually new um, in 2018. That's not an easy thing to do. It could have been um, the director. It could have been the director's idea, um, Kevin Hooks, for all I know. Um, I don't know, but that was really really cool. Um, and then it also, it's the adult chasing the ghost of his youth, which is a great visualization of one of the the themes that runs throughout Stephen King's works. Uh Uh-oh. On the radio at the junkyard, we hear that a fire has broken out at Juniper Hill. And it's an ominous beat that immediately gets shuffled aside as Alan focuses on retrieving Lacey's car, but is then followed up as Ruth picking up spilled pills, watches as the kid returns home, takes off his jacket and shoes like he belongs there. Honestly, he's acting like the man of the house. When we see him next, it's through Alan's eyes as he returns home to find the kid, bloodied hand, sitting outside, and he ominously states, there will be a monument to Warden Lacey and everyone who helped me put me in that cage. Why would you leave me in that trunk, Sheriff? It's a horrifying beat to conclude the show on and shows just how foolish Alan was to leave him alone or to trust him at all. In previous episodes, I wondered if the kid was bad at all, or whether or not he was the victim of his own curse, whatever that curse might be. Now it appears as though the kid is really leaning into his villainous side of this character. Okay, with all that out of the way, let's get to the big part of this episode. Henry's journey has led him to the duo that has been stalking him over the last couple of days, and this leads to a heavy, heady, cosmic ten or so minutes um, when talking about the schisma, a term that I had never used before, just about the sounds that, that make up the universe. I mean, this is a concept that I have, you know, encountered in, in, um, 
in, in other stories, uh, comic books come to mind. Grant Morrison plays with that a lot um, when when he writes about the the universe. In fact, there was a, in a series that he had done, Final Crisis, in which spoiler alert, um, Superman uh, he defeats Darkseid, um, and 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 Darkseid is is I believe is is rendered. Um, probably in the, the, the best way that he ever had been before because in the wrong hands, Darkseid is just a, a super-powered alien. Um, but in the hands of Grant Morrison current um, Grant Morrison at the time and currently um, Tom King over in Mr. Miracle, um, Darkseid is, is more of a concept, right? It's an idea. And how do you fight an idea, right? It is it's a powerful thought. It is a being that, um, that in Final Crisis... Um, is well is 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 murdered, um, but because it is such a large concept and a large being of of mind and thought, when it falls, it falls, and and the the the, the visual um, analogy that's given is it's it's like um, a bowling ball um, falling falling into a a, a tablecloth. And time and space is the tablecloth, so the bowling ball is pulling everything after it. So as Darkseid falls backwards through time, it, it is pulling reality and and, um, and time with it and, and screwing with everything. And um, even though he's dying, he's actually winning. Um, and so it's how do you beat this? How do you how do you and 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 what's great about the construction of Final Crisis is that it it creates this. I don't even want to say nonlinear because that gets thrown around too much, but the fragmentation of storytelling really reinforces the the, the lack of um, or the slippage of reality. Um, so our characters are are very much um, at a loss here. And anyway, so here comes Superman, um, and Superman is is able to save the day um, by whistling a tune. He sings a song, and and that sound, this beautiful sound. Um, is is able to break um, apart from a from a molecular level um, through supersonic vibrations, the the essence of dark side. So I mean, it the 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 idea of sound um, on a on a on a multiversal level is something that I have encountered before, and so I find it fascinating that's being encountered here. Um, and and um, you know, we get a lot of quantum mechanics. A combination of science and religion, um, which you know we had seen before um, in another J.J. Abrams-produced show, Lost. I had already talked about that, um, but then Odin signs literally other here's other nows. Um, now that is huge. That is the indication that there are other worlds than these, right? And um, this makes me think very much, the first thing that came to mind wasn't the Dark Tower actually, but was the Talisman. Um, because right here and now is a famous phrase from uh, the Talisman. And so right here and now sounds very similar to other here's other nows. But of course that sounds very similar to there are other worlds than these. Um, but what we get here is just the the, this idea of different worlds and different existence um, vibrating at, at, at different levels all around us and, and, and to see this conversation take place. And it is a meaty, chewy, science-y, uh, psychobabble conversation. It's, it was just insane to listen to. I had such a big grin on my face um, hearing... Uh, you know, our actors uh, talk about this from the the, the Culkin uh, to, uh, you know, Odin signing it, which was a fantastic choice to have a deaf actor sign for over 10 minutes on screen. It was so captivating. It was so captivating to watch um, by a campfire, by a campfire where where tales are told, where spooky ghost stories are told. And, and we have a, a very spooky story being told about... Um, bio and psychoacoustics um, by a campfire uh, through sign language. It was it was so captivating. It was you don't see this on television. I I I don't know. I mean I, I just I'm sorry. I, I just I'm very impressed with what I'm seeing from Castle Rock. This was an incredible sequence of television. And if next week's 
anything like this, then we are in for a treat for next week. The, the deaf acting here was... I'm very happy that this actor was cast um, for this actor, but also for representation. Um, I, I'm glad that we are seeing a perspective um, and a role and a character that we typically don't get a chance to see. And just the crazy Winnebago of it all was so much fun. Um, like I had already talked about the, the, the true knot, but having something otherworldly housed within something worldly is always a great push-pull. And to know that there's this magic box within uh, this, this Winnebago was, was phenomenal. Now, like the best mysteries, it, it might begin to answer some question, but it raises a whole lot more. What was the father doing out there? What is the schisma? Um, what is going to happen to Henry next? You know, is this the, the moment really for Henry that starts everything? Does he, like Desmond, does he start, does his mind go through time? You know, will he, will the, 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 the present day Henry awaken in the body of his childhood self, right? Are we going to start to get something like that? I don't know what we're going to get next week, but I cannot wait. This was a great episode. So the, the the last few episodes of Castle Rock really have just been strong, strong episodes, and I'm really looking forward to next week. So we have a couple Easter eggs, guys. Um, we have Juniper Hill, obviously, um, which is uh, a very famous location in the world of Stephen King. We have a couple Steve, uh, Stephen King-isms, uh, birds, um, as whether harbingers um, of, of death or uh, vessels for uh, villainy. Um, we have seen um, whether the, 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 the sparrows as the psychopomps in uh, the, the dark half or the crows um, used by Randall Flagg in the stand or um, there's an eagle in uh, desperation, we, we see we see birds not necessarily always as as vessels of good, and of course portals to other worlds making noise. I mean, we have seen this before with thinnies. Um, so this is this is I, I like how they're not referencing this as a thinny, um, but to know that it does align with things that King had written about that that is really really cool. Now, one last note, guys. There, there's two things that I. I want to discuss that that's cool about what Castle Rock is doing here with this particular episode. And, and the first one is actually what Castle Rock has been doing with the entire season so far. One thing that I have noticed with Stephen King, and I mentioned this actually in the Doctor Sleep episode, I believe, that, that I did, um, in which, spoiler for Doctor Sleep, a, a living, breathing Wendy um, doesn't exist in, in Doctor Sleep. Um, when she had died previous to the, the, the present events of, of Dr. Sleep. Um, and I, I thought to myself, well, that was kind of unnecessary because she could be alive. And it made me realize that, oh, so many of King's protagonist's parents could be alive. We don't get adult characters with their adult parents ever in Stephen King books, ever. There's a few, there's the one that comes to mind is, is Johnny Smith and his dad. Um, but it, it's very few and far between. And, you know, that, that is, we, we have seen so many examples of different perspectives throughout King's works. We have seen it through adult perspectives. We have seen it through um, the, the, the perspective of men, of women, um, of uh, children, of high schoolers, of college students. We, we, we have seen a, a whole wide array of different perspectives, but we never see the perspective, really, of an adult with an adult parent. So to see the show um, focusing so much on um, Henry and his still-living mother, um, it, it, it makes this feel so fresh. Similarly, in this episode, the 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 ten plus minute conversation in the woods. Sorry about that noise, guys. The ten plus conversation minute in in the woods with um, uh, with Odin and um, with Henry. So much of it was uh, about the science, 
right? And and so much of, of what King writes about is always based on supernatural, right? So to have this science basis for the craziness that's going to occur, um, it, again, makes it feel very, very fresh. It doesn't make it seem not Stephen King's story because there's still... Um, creepy stuff. It, it's still tinged with creepiness. I mean, and it's still taking place in the woods, but I like that it does have science to it. And of course, as we saw with the Dark Tower, science did play a role in accessing other worlds um, where magic uh, had done it prior. So there was a great blend of magic and science. And, you know, here in, in in Castle Rock, we are seeing another blend of science and magic, or whatever you want to call, uh, you know, uh, Molly's psychic abilities, shining, the touch, whatever, that is more on the realm of supernatural. Whereas what we have, um, the, the, the bio and psycho uh, acoustics and, and that whole conversation, that is all science-based. So I like this combination that, that, that we're getting. So guys, this has been um, a really fun uh, episode and it's almost at an hour now, so I'm going to put a pin in it. But guys, if you have any thoughts, please write in to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, if you have a couple minutes on your hands, please leave a, a, a quick review on iTunes because that could really help me out. Um, and enjoy the weekend, everybody. And um, stay tuned for my next episode of Castle Rock, episode 7. I hope that lives up to the hype. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Oh, hold on. No, I didn't do that right. Um, may you have long days and pleasant nights because that's important. It's important. May you have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Oh, yeah.